minutes, 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. of nowhere, the flying saucer mystery is with us. What is the flying saucer? What do people see and sometimes photograph? What's behind the daily reports of aerial phenomena in the nation's press? After more than five years of study, there is still no agreement, even among the experts. Okay, Um, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of the entire UFO subject to me. I have been interested in the Wilbur Smith story for years. Uh, Grant Cameron, our next speaker, has been involved with the UFO subject uh, since 1975. He's followed the Smith case uh, for 25 years. He's amassed uh, a great amount of information, a lot of it previously unknown about Wilbur Smith. And uh, he's also been involved with uh, the MJ-12 business. He and T. Scott Crane did a book called M- uh, UFOs, MJ-12, and the Government, I believe is the title, which MUFON uh, still has for sale if you want to get a copy of that. Well worth your time. Uh, I think uh, from what you've heard about Wilbur Smith in the past, some of you have undoubtedly read about him. He was the Canadian scientist who apparently had access to very high levels uh, of the U.S. government. He was the one who was responsible for the the quotation that UFOs are the most highly classified subject in the U.S. government. And uh, he also used, uh, I guess we would say, very unconventional methods sometimes in obtaining information from the extraterrestrials themselves. Uh, Please welcome our first Canadian speaker in the last 14 years, Grant Cameron. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Lou for inviting me to come and tell some stories. America's quite the country. They actually fly people around just to tell stories. And um, I do mean stories because as far as I'm concerned, until the President of the United States stands up and says uh, extraterrestrials are, are what this is all about, we're basically just telling each other stories. Because I, I refer to the maestro, the person who is running this whole um, orchestra of cover-up. They control the bodies, they control the hardware, they control the documents. 
and all the rest is just basically stories. Uh, I'd also like to thank Lou for his gracious and kind introduction. Uh, he made a valiant attempt to try to make me sound like I might know what I'm talking about, so I'll try not to embarrass him too badly. The first thing I'd like to say to you as an audience is that I hope you realize the heavy hitters that Lou has brought in here this weekend to speak. Uh, I go to a lot of UFO conventions and usually I know, say, between 30 and 50 percent of the speakers that are there, and the other 50 percent I usually say, well, who's this guy, like, what's he talking about? And um, all the people that have spoken here or that are on the list, I know all of them. And the vast majority of them I've actually hit up for information. I phone them up, can you tell me a UFO story? I've dealt with all these people over the years, and I'm quite impressed with the lineup of speakers that have been brought in here. As Lou said, I was brought in here to talk about uh, Wilbert Smith. Uh, there's an interview that we're going to uh, play here, and um, it was done with Wilbert Smith's son a month ago. And I guess Lou heard the interview and um, was talking to some Canadian people, and I was suggested as the person who probably knows more Wilbert Smith stories than anyone. Um, when I agreed, I looked at the, the list of speakers, and I sort of feel a little bit like I'm in the seventh game of a World Series, and it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and there's two out, and there's bases loaded, and we're one, one run down, and I'm the pitcher coming up to hit. And the manager's saying, I think we're going to win this thing, like what's going on, you know, like we've got this thing in the bag, and who's next up to hit? And they say, oh, no, not the pitcher. So I feel a little intimidated by some of these people that, that I've looked to for, for many years for information. Uh, as Lou also said, I'm from Canada, eh? And uh, I'm considered a bit of a traitor in my own country as I'm, uh, I'm quite often in the States. In fact, this year I may actually be in the States every month. And I'm just, uh, despite the number of places I've been and the number of states I've, I've been in doing research, this is the first time I've ever been to Arkansas, and I'd like to say I'm very happy to be here. And it's an honor to be in the state that actually uh, created the rooster president. Uh, when, when Clinton was in office, uh, I hated the guy. And to me, it was, like a, it was like a boxing fight between him and Ken Starr. And I can tell you honestly, I was pulling for Ken Starr. Come on, Ken, like hit him, come on. You know, like knock him, his knees are wobbling, come on, knock him out. And basically, when, when all was said and done, Bill Clinton remained standing through the entire fight. And about a month before Bill and President Hillary left office, <laughs> I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Clinton administration, and more specifically with the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is the office of Clinton's science advisor, Dr. Jack Gibbons. When all was said and done, I managed to collect over a thousand pages of UFO documents from the Clinton White House. And this is only one um, agency inside the White House that was exempt that you, you could file a Freedom of Information Act request. The Clinton Library opens in 2006, January. Uh, Freedom of Information requests are available for all the Clinton um, uh, departments. And I can guarantee you, if I'm not the first in line with my stack of Freedom of Information Act requests at that library, I'm going to be pretty close to the front of the line when it opens. Because the Clinton, what these documents that I got showed was that they weren't just ordinary documents. Usually when you get government documents, you get citing reports, letters from people in, in, the, in the public and stuff. What these documents were, they were letters signed by people like Do uh, uh, Lawrence Rockefeller, 
former Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird, uh, Dr. Billy Graham. And what the documents also showed that uh, President Clinton had greenlighted the disclosure process. The Roswell report that some of you may know on, uh, that was done by the Air Force in 1994-95, whenever they put it out, was greenlighted by Clinton. The 1997 CIA uh, report that was put out by the CIA was greenlighted by Clinton. Now, both those studies turned out to be whitewashes, but that's not really Clinton's fault. Clinton sort of got nothing because Clinton was from the South, like Jimmy Carter, and people from the South aren't respected in, in Washington. And the second reason that these things were um, uh, whitewashed and Clinton didn't get anything is the fact that Clinton ran his campaign against the Washington insiders. He ran against Washington when he, he won, and you shouldn't be too surprised if you get to Washington and you're running against Washington when you get there that nobody cooperates with you. Now I feel very bad that I was wanting Kenny to beat him up, because now I actually sort of like Bill Clinton. <laughs> and, what it, and what it goes to show is, a, is a, an important lesson I think we have to learn in ufology, and that is that you shouldn't count the horses until they're all in the barn, which means I might yet change my opinion on George W. Bush, but I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> okay, can we go to um, the first slide? Okay, first slide. Uh, my topic is going to be Wilbur Smith, who was the head of the Canadian government flying saucer study. Um, hang on here. Gee. Just a sec, we've got to go back here. This is technology here. First I had to learn to build a website, then I had to learn to use this thing. Hey, hang on, we'll get it. We're going back. Go. Somehow it missed a slide here. Here it is. Okay, this is my website. You can write it down. My interest is basically the presidents, what the presidents know. Um, and I have, being a Canadian, we don't put everything on the website all at one time, but I have quite a bit of material and I'm not here to lecture on this, but basically what I'm going to say is for the Arkansas people, I have, I think, six or seven major sections on, on the Clintons and UFOs, and I would encourage you to read it because goodness knows nobody else does. I, I go to my website. I used to go every day to see who's on there, how many hits I've got, all that kind of stuff. And recently I only go once a week because it's very discouraging. I go there and I always push on the most popular page to see what people are reading and it's almost always the picture page. And I think to myself, what is this kindergarten, what people can't read or what, what is the problem here? I, I work on this Clinton stuff and I think it's really good and I've got on there and there's like two people a day reading it. So I would encourage you to, to get on this um, and read some of the, the, the Clinton material. And what I've started to do now, because people aren't really reading the articles, is I've started to... What am I... This thing's missing pages here. My worst nightmare here. It's miss... It's missing a slide. I guess we'll have to miss it. I've, I've started to put on presidential UFO cartoons. For some reason, it's not coming up here. Yeah, I was there, but now I can't. It's, it's skipping over that, that page for whatever reason. Um, now, class notes, what I've done, and I should make a note here, the Wilbur Smith stuff, I'm not going to discuss 
his book, which he wrote. There was four volume or four printings of his book done, and it was called *A New Science*. And this was material that Smith wrote on how the universe works, the twelve dimensions, and he claimed that, that the majority of this stuff was given to him by the aliens. It's very complex stuff. Uh, it's not being printed anymore. This is one of the few copies that remains. Anybody who's interested in that kind of stuff, uh, I have a copy that you can sort of page through it as long as you don't steal it and take a look at it. Um, I'm not going to discuss, there's so many Wilbur Smith stories, I'm not going to discuss stuff like the binding meters, this sort of stuff. Uh, but what I will guarantee you, you're going to hear enough stories that, uh, as we would say in Canada, it's better than a kick in the rear end with a frozen boot. You're, you're going to hear some, some very bizarre stories. And because there were so many, what I have done is I have put a lot of stories on a website. I built a website for this lecture. The majority of the, the notes that I'm using for this lecture are on that website. A lot of stories that I'm just going to refer to, for example, one of Smith's uh, people related to me a story about a, a crash of a U-2 in Canada and the unbelievable job that the Americans did to recover this thing. Stories like that. I'm going to refer to stories that are on the website that I really haven't got time to tell. Document lectures always fail. If you start getting into documents and you start uh, dealing with documents, people just get sort of lost. I have a number of documents that I'm going to refer to. Uh, very important documents that, that surround the Wilbur Smith case and the Canadian study. All those documents are on this website. And the website is at the bottom of the page. You can write it down. And everything is on there. The other thing I have that has never been released is I have all the groups and the names of people around Wilbur Smith. Wilbur Smith had a, a whole series of people around him. He had, for example, what I'm going to refer to as the inner circle. This was five or six people very close to Wilbur Smith that were working on experiments with him. He had U.S. government officials that he was dealing with, I named them. Canadian government officials, I named them. Uh, the F Ottawa Flying Saucer Club, I refer to that. Uh, Project Magnet people, I named. Project Second Story people, I named. And all that stuff is on the website. The, the next piece is, is very important. I would encourage everybody to read it, because uh, usually stuff that I write, I don't really respect too much. But the stuff that I put together on the Smith quotes is excellent. I mean, it is Wilbur Smith on crash flying saucers, Wilbur Smith on aliens, Wilbur Smith on a a communication with aliens, Wilbur Smith on hardware, Wilbur Smith on the government cover-up, Wilbur Smith on White House interns. Everything is there, everything you wanted to read. And I encourage you to read that. The final thing I have, because Wilbur Smith headed the, the, the Canadian government UFO program or flying saucer program, he was asked on a number of occasions the ultimate question. So why is the government covering this up? Wilbur Smith wrote an article called Official Reticence. It's a long article, and that's his answer. You're, you're, you're reading a guy who ran the, the Canadian government UFO study, and he's telling you why the government is covering this thing up. Uh, the last two items, Smith's quotes and the official reticence, for people who don't have internet access, I have about 150 copies of a, of a readout, uh, like a handout, that are available at the front desk. So you can get them at the front desk and they have the Smith quotes and they have the article official reticence. But there's, because there's so many people here, I think there's 150 copies or something, I would ask that first the people who don't have internet access pick it up. And they're, they're two very important things that I'm really not going to have time to get into. Let's see if this skips again. Okay, Wilbur Smith as we said, was the director of Canada's official flying saucer program. And I say flying saucer for a very specific reason, that being that except for a few occasions, Wilbur Smith never used the word UFO. Never. The odd time he'd use it. He always called them flying saucers. He always called them saucers. 
He always called them spaceship. He knew the reality of this phenomenon right from the word go, and we're going to tell you about that. And I think he also realized that the U.S. Air Force's development of the term UFO in 1952 was in part a counterintelligence move to muddy the waters, and it's worked extremely well. So that's why I refer to it as the official flying saucer study. Now, Smith has a case study. As far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most dra dramatic stories in ufology. It may not be the most important story in ufology, but it is in the top five. It is that if you see what actually was going on, and I'm only going to tell you part of the story, you'll see that it is one of the most important stories that has come down the pike. Um, it's also a story that reveals what the government might know, because Wilbur Smith did talk about what was going on, and he was the guy. He was, there was nobody working for, he wasn't working for really anybody. It's not like Project Blue Book, where Project Blue Book is sending their stuff to somebody else. This was the guy at the top. And the most important thing that I hope I'm going to get across today is a forced reassessment of the metaphysical aspects of ufology. And I am going to talk about this until you're absolutely sick about it. It's a very important part of the Smith thing. And what it basically comes down to is until we learn metaphysics and start applying it to the field of ufology, we are going nowhere. And that's maybe why we haven't gotten anywhere. Okay, how I got involved... Um, I got involved in a flap of UFO sightings in 1975-1976 in Carmen, Manitoba, which is, uh, I live in Manitoba, which is just above the North Dakota border, about 60 miles. And I had no interest in UFOs, just went out one day, there, there was a bunch of sightings, and it was in the newspaper, and we went out and we decided we wanted to go and see what everybody was looking at. Saw it, it absolutely changed my life. Uh, Bob Pratt, who spoke here last night, was actually up there covering the story. It was connected with a bunch of sightings that happened in Wisconsin, was going on at exactly the same time. Bob Pratt came up, and the National Enquirer was going to do a story, UFO Capital of the World. And the story, I don't think, even made the paper. I, I don't believe it was actually printed. But in 1975, there's big objects flying around. In 1976, we dealt with a series of small objects that we called ground lights. And when I uh, talked to some of the inner circle people, one of them lived in my area, and he said, oh, you mean monitors? And I said, yeah, okay, monitors. And he said, well, well, yeah, we had those back in Ottawa all the time, Wilbert and I, and they started describing these stories about these little things that we were chasing, and I was 50 feet away from one. At one time, I was ready to jump on the thing. And the Smith people talked about, um, in fact, his wife told me the story, and on this interview that I'm going to refer to later on, Wilbur Smith's son talks about this. They were small little objects, uh, 18 inches, 24 inches across. And the uh, Ottawa Flying Saucer people, when they would have meetings, they described that these little objects would come, and basically they were monitoring the situation. They were following Wilbur Smith around. And these things would sit outside the window of the, of the basement while they were having UFO meetings, and they, they said it would look like a, it was brilliant, lit up, like a donut. And uh, Mrs. I remember when I interviewed Mrs. Uh, Smith in the mid-70s, she told me that um, they would burn out a whole row of beans. It destroyed a tree in the backyard, and I think it was actually a neighbor's tree. Uh, Wilbur Smith's son talks about coming out and seeing one of these things beside the, the, the sidewalk, and it had killed the grass, this sort of stuff. And even Smith's neighbors knew about this. Wilbur Smith's neighbors said, Wilbur, we don't care where your little friends are from, or what they're doing here, just keep them out of our yard. 
Now, the, re the reason I got involved in this whole thing, I was working on these sightings, and, and I was taking tours out to see these little monitors and flashing lights at them, like Stephen Greer, and these things were responding and stuff, and I actually had one case where an RCMP officer got involved and suddenly realized what I was doing and realized what we were looking at, and suddenly took off and just, I mean, didn't ask my name, nothing, just got out of there. And because my father was a pilot in the Department of Transport, my father was like me, he was a very nice guy, everybody knew him. And so when uh, one of the people who was involved in the 75 flap was a, a radar tech out of the Department of Transport who had worked for Wilbur Smith. And um, he said to me, he says, well, you know, if you're into UFOs, you should research the Smith guy. He was, he, was, he was the most brilliant engineer you'd ever met. But when it came to UFOs, this guy was absolutely crazy. He was just, he was talking to him every day and they were landing in his yard and stuff. And I said, say what, 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 what? And I was just absolutely amazed. So when I went inside the Department of Transport, and I'd say, I'm Bob Cameron's son. And they'd say, oh, yeah, Bob Cameron, oh, very well. Yeah, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? And they would, people would tell me whatever I wanted to know. And I had um, people that worked for Smith, who were junior techs at the time. And that's where I started to collect the stories. I went through the Canadian government, tried to force the issue with the Canadian government, and they actually interviewed one of the people in the Department of Transport, interviewed Merle Smith, who is Wilbur Smith's wife, and she agreed to talk to me. And I can still remember, I, I live in a city, a fairly large city, 700,000 people. We have no freeways. And I remember going to Ottawa, it was the first time I'd ever been on an expressway, and Mrs. Smith said, well, we've got to go to Jim's place, my son. We're going to go over there and we're going to talk about this. And I said, okay, fine. And I remember we were driving along down this expressway, first time I've ever been on an expressway and I'm trying to not run into anything, and she's talking about this AFA, and this AFA, is, as I'll tell you, is the alien, and AFA this and AFA that, and I'm trying to drive it, I'm like, like it, it was like, she was talking about it like it was the, the, the family pet or something, and I spent three, I believe three or four hours with, with uh, Merle and, and the son, and I'm telling you, it was like being in the twilight zone, and that's what this story is like, if you actually know all the, the, the stuff, like, I, as you see on the last point there, I, I did talk with a number of members of the inner circle, and they would tell the same bizarre stories of what was going on. It was like a different world back there. Now, to get into Smith's background, for people who are not familiar with this guy, he gained an interest in, in flying saucers in 1949, 1950, reading articles, and he read Frank Scully's book on the crash flying saucers. And at that point, he decided he wanted to do something about this. He figured he had an idea of what, what was going on, what these things were. He was, at the time, a, se a senior radio engineer with the, with the Department of Transport in Canada. He was responsible for all sorts of ionospheric tests, of bouncing radio waves off the ionosphere. They monitored 50,000 radio stations in Canada. They allocated, when the Canadians and the Americans negotiated FM radio stations, they had to allocate the frequencies to various uh, stations, whatever. Wilbur Smith was the, the Canadian guy that was negotiating. Um, a lot of Canadian government people later on took some shots at Smith that he wasn't all quite there. Uh, so I always don't fail to point, uh, I always want to point out that in 1956 he was promoted after the project finished, he was promoted to the superintendent of radio regulations inside the Department of Transport. And as far as I know, you usually don't promote the crazy guy. A very important thing, the, the next item that's on the list here is he ran Radio Ottawa. I was talking to one of the inner circle members and this guy was a, a military scientist who worked for Smith and I was, we were talking about security clearances and he was clarifying me on security clearances. He basically said, forget about the secret, the top secret and all, all the, the names on the thing. Security works on one simple principle, need to know. 
that you can be uh, just a junior tech and you can know more than the guy that's on the top if you have a need to know and if you're working on a certain program. And he said, Wilbur Smith had a very high security clearance. He says, I don't know if you know that, uh, outside the UFO thing. And I said, well, no, I didn't know that. He said, he ran Radio Ottawa. Do you know what Radio Ottawa was? And I said, well, no. He said, Radio Ottawa was the place where the, where the spies radioed in. It was also the place that monitored the Russian communications, and Smith ran it. He handed out the radio frequencies. If you take intelligence agencies, they need radio frequencies. Smith was the person who allocated the radio frequencies. So Smith was a very high-powered government official, despite anything that he did with UFOs. He was also not a typical researcher. Um, I, we've recovered the vast majority of Smith's files. We've got about 500 pages of letters and uh, documents and stuff that he um, left. And on only two occasions does he ever really get mad at anybody. It's not like today with all the squabbling and stuff. He was, he was a completely different type of uh, person. He was very nice to everybody, dealt with everybody on a level playing field. Um, this is the actual material. Smith headed Project Magnet. Project Magnet was the, the report that was the official study on flying saucers. It ran from 1950 to 1954. I'll talk quite a bit about it. He was also a key member of what was called Project Second Story, which was the uh, Canadian Defense Department study on UFOs. It's been written up by a number of researchers, some highfalutin study on UFOs. It was a total whitewash, and I'm not even going to you know, dignify you by talking about it. Um, Smith was a member of that, of that board. The Project Magnet Report is another one that you should know about. It's very, very important. It was written in 1953, and basically what it was was an interim report on Project, Project Magnet. And it was, the, the conclusion is what you should know. The conclusion written by Wilbur Smith was based on rigid statistical analysis of the sightings coming into the Canadian government. There was a 91% probability that these objects are real. There was a 60% probability that they are extraterrestrial. The report went up. It sat on the Prime Minister's desk. The Prime Ministers are equivalent to your President of the United States. The Project Magnet report sat on the Prime Minister's desk for three months. At the end of three months, Prime Minister Saint Laurent, who was in power at the time, decided that it probably wasn't the appropriate time to release this report, and apparently Wilbur Smith went along with it. The final item on the list there is the Flying Saucer Observatory, which Smith became somewhat famous in the United States. He, I think he was written up in a number of these uh, Science Digest magazines and stuff, based upon a, a flying saucer observatory that Smith had built in 1953. And what it was was a station where they monitored the, the, these communications, uh, Russian communications, inside the, the fence. They had set up uh, sort of like a, a shed there, and they had five different things they were registering, like changing gravity, changing noise. They had an ionospheric uh, machine there. And what they could do is they could detect anything that was flying over. And of course, Wilbur wanted to detect a flying saucer. And they would have profiles on planes. They, they could tell when a plane was going over based upon what kind of, of, of track it made on the paper. Later, I'll talk about the Flying Saucer Observatory. It's what actually got Wilbur Smith shut down. One thing I will mention at this point was when I was talking to one of the Inner, inner Circle members, uh, the Canadian government has always said that the material that was used in there was uh, surplus material from various departments that Wilbur was using. The one item, as told to me by an Inner Circle member, was that the magnetometer that was used was not surplus. It was state-of-the-art. It was used to track submarines, and I'll refer to that again in a bit. Okay, 
we got a this is the famous top secret memo smith is is basically i guess known for the top secret memo he wrote a top secret memo to the canadian government dealing with flying saucers after a visit to the united states in 1950 and what i want you to note on the thing on the very top above the department of transport you have top secret it's been stroked out on the top right hand corner you have um, the final declassification of this document which is important to note 1979 down uh, on the right hand just below there you have uh, a, a downgrading of the document in 1969 to confidential and for, for now I'm going to talk about this later that's all you need to know but those dates are very important dealing with this document the, the, the top secret document I put down here uh, a very important point it was obtained through discrete inquiries and there's an S on the end of that word. A number of people writing up this story will say that um, Wilbur Smith went down to the United States, he talked to uh, Dr. Robert Saubacher, and that Robert Saubacher told him a bunch of stuff, he went back and wrote the top secret memo, that is not true. Robert Saubacher was one of the people Smith talked to. Wilbur Smith talked to a number of high-ranking people in the United States. Saubacher has been somewhat famous because of his um, talk about um, uh, UFOs at the time, association with Vannevar Bush, who headed the program, talked about this sort of stuff. He was an electrical engineer, so was Wilbur Smith, so was Dr. Eric Walker, who we later tracked down. A number of the people that were involved were electrical engineers. Saubacher was also a freelancer. He ran a, a laboratory in Washington, D.C. that a lot of the high military people would go to to run tests and this sort of stuff. So Saubacher sort of knew what was going on. And Smith had, through the Canadian Embassy in Washington, had used a military attaché and he had gone out and uh, got a hold of Saubacher, and they do an interview. Now, one of the points, I'm, I'm not going to talk about Walker. Walker was the guy we wrote the book on. We chased him around for eight years, and I'm pretty sure he was quite sorry he answered the first phone call. But uh, Saubacher put us on to him, and um, Saubacher himself was interviewed by Wilbur Smith, and the notes, I think I've got the notes on the Internet, that Wilbur Smith in his files actually left the actual set of notes of the, the interview with, with Saubacher. And one thing I should, I guess, have mentioned at this moment was the fact that a lot of the documents, for example, the, the top secret document that I showed you the front page of, the top secret document and a number of the other key documents, Wilbur Smith double copied them and put them in his files. He was dying of cancer. He knew he was dying. He told his wife, he said, when I die, they're coming to get the files. Wilbur Smith made arrangements to have the files hidden. He told his wife, he said, they're coming to get the files. I don't care who comes. I don't care what they tell you. You do not give up the files. Mrs. Smith told me that the minute he died, Wilbur was right. They started to come. The Canadians came looking for the files for research purposes. The Americans came looking for the files for research purposes. And the Russians came looking for the files for research purposes. Wilbur had been involved with all three Russians, Americans, and Canadians. He had sit on, sat on the board of the International Geophysical Year in 1957. It was a big thing. Uh, all sorts of scientists around the world gathering together to run experiments. Wilbur sat on the board and had contact with these different people. And the Russians took him very seriously. The book that I showed you, the uh, book that Wilbur Smith printed, or his wife printed after he died, uh, half of all the copies went to Finland and were headed for the Soviet Union of all the books that were published. Saubacher, on, on this interview that I have, I'm pretty sure I have it on the website, uh, Wilbur Smith tells Smith uh, a number of things. He tells him, for example, flying saucers exist. He says, the subject of flying saucers is classified two points higher than the hydrogen bomb. 
the most highly classified secret in the United States. And this is an interview that takes place, I believe, in September of 1950. The, the next one is uh, a key point. I'm coming back to it later. There's no clarification as to where they're from. So remember that. He tells Smith that in order to get further material, he should get clearance. There is a second top secret memo that was in Smith's files, which doesn't appear in the government files when, we, when they were finally forced out of the Canadian government, where Smith has actually writ a, wrote, written a second top secret memo where he goes to the Canadian government and he asks for clearance. And we can now prove that he did have clearance in the United States to talk to the Americans. Uh, the top secret memo, this top point, I've just just a couple days, the material just keeps rolling in, uh, discusses a new propulsion theory. Smith had a, based on the Scully book, he had an idea that the Earth's geomagnetic field could be used as a source of propulsion, and he had an idea that the flying saucers were using this geomagnetic field to propel themselves. So he goes to the United States, and he, he links up with the Americans to try to um, um, find out what the Americans know about this. Now, let's hope this works, because I've got to go ahead and then come back. What we've discovered, this is a geomagnetic survey map. It's produced by the U.S. Navy. It is a map that um, gives the Earth's geomagnetic field. Wilbur Smith wrote the top secret memo in 1950, and the top secret memo talks about um, the geomagnetic theory. In an interview with Dr. Oman Salant, who was one of the key people, I won't really get into who he was. He sat at the level of the Joint Chiefs in Canada. We asked him a question, or uh, one of the researchers asked him a question and said, was Smith's theories ever discussed with Vannevar Bush? Now, Vannevar Bush was the key U.S. guy. He was the uh, science advisor to Roosevelt. He was uh, the scientific uh, administrator for some projects you may have heard about, like the atomic bomb and radar and proximity fuse and the homing torpedo, all the weapons of Second World War. Vannevar Bush was the guy who was the scientific administrator. They confirmed, this guy confirmed that Smith's theories were probably discussed with Vannevar Bush. This U.S. Navy project is also called Project Magnet. Now, we always thought that there was probably some connection. Now, uh, we just discovered an article that was written by NICAP in 1963. And in this article, a fellow by the name of Beck, who was, he worked for Major Kehoe, and he was a former Lockheed flight test engineer. And what they were doing with this thing is they would take Constellation aircraft and they would fly them in 200-mile in tracks around the world, measuring the Earth's gravitational field. Beck talked to the, the, the guys that were flying it, and the guys that were flying the planes confirmed that the Flying Saucer Project in the United States and the, uh, no, the, this, this geomagnetic project by the U.S. Navy and the Canadian Flying Saucer Program were closely related. And it was what we always suspected but the, the key point is that the, the top secret memo was written in 1950, and we were always trying to find out, did Smith have clearance to talk in the United States? This program began in 1951. So it's kind of coincidental that Smith, Smith's theories are discussed with Vannevar Bush in late 1950, early 1951, and suddenly the U.S. Air Force uh, starts running tracks and measuring the Earth's gravitational field. Not only was, were they listening to Wilbur Smith or talking to Wilbur Smith, they were listening to him and they were actually running stuff to try to back or support his theory about the Earth's gravitational field. Now, let's see if I can go back here. Well, shoot. i to go back two slides here. Hang on.
Okay, the top secret memo has always been described as having four main points. And I'm going to say it has five, and I will maintain till I die. There's five main points, and the fifth is the most important. In the top secret memo, if you read it, and it's on my website, these are the point, the four points. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rated higher than the H-bomb. That was told to him by Saubacher. Flying saucers exist. That was told to him by Saubacher. Their modus operandi is unknown, but concentrated effort is being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, who I've already described. This is a key point. I'm coming back to this one as well. Um, the fourth point is the entire matter is considered by the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. Now, just to go back one, this op modus operandi thing, that was not told to my Saarbacher. It was not in the, in the Saarbacher interview. That he got from somebody else, the, the whole fact that Vannevar Bush was running the program. So the fourth point, the fifth, is the most important, and it's one I'm going to spend the majority of the, the lecture talking about. Smith says, as soon as he finishes point four, the very next words in the memo say, I was further informed that the United States authorities are investigating a along quite a number of lines which might possibly be related to the saucers such as mental phenomena. In ufology, mental phenomena, the metaphysical thing has been thrown out. We're interested in hardware, all this kind of stuff. Wilbur Smith had received information from the Americans right from the word go that mental phenomena was important. One of the things I might point out that sort of backs this theory up, the top secret memo was written in um, November of 1950 in 1951, in June of 1951, 100 miles down the road at McGill University in Montreal, Dr. Salant, who was involved with the, the um, Smith with the um, Project Magnet, was in negotiations with the CIA for a project you may have heard of, MKUltra. That's where it began. And it involves mind control, and it sort of backs up the fact that the Americans were scrambling in 1950 to deal with mental phenomena. They realized that this stuff was important, and it, it might be connected to the saucers. Now, communication, this is, this is the, the key point. Um, the, fir the first quote there is, is, again, by Slant, who was a very high-ranking guy. And what Slant says, he confirms that Smith was very keen on communication with outer space. The second quote I have there is just to point out um, that Smith had some running battles. He, as he described it, a running battle with Major Kehoe all through the 1950s. Kehoe did not buy into contactees. In fact, in 1958, Kehoe put a, a message in the, in the nightcap bulletin saying, all the contactees are to send in their memberships. You guys are out of here. We're not having anything to do with you guys. And Smith, as you can see from the quote, said to him, you're wrong, you're dead wrong. This is probably the most important aspect of the whole thing. And now I want to divert for just a second because I can't really, in good conscience, go into talking about all the bizarre things about the, the, the contacts in, in the Canadian government without at, at some point defending Wilbur Smith and defending the contactees and defending this, this whole notion that, that this is not important. And I'm sort of going to read a little bit about this, and this is on the website. I have a longer version of this. As of next December, Wilbur Smith will have been dead for 40 years. And as I said, I, I can't really get into the weird stuff that was going on without sort of defending Wilbur Smith for doing what he did and pointing out that he did what was the right thing to do. The majority of us in this room, I think, would fit into the category that we want to establish the reality of the phenomena. And we want that reality disclosed to the American people. And I think on that point I'm right. But as much as we hate to admit it, part of what we want in this phenomena is we want vindication. We want people to stop laughing at us. 
we want people to think that we're in a respected field and we think that hardware and things like this would bring us that and I think I and everybody else would have would, would just love to have me or somebody else haul an alien up on this stage a dead alien we could all come up here and touch it and we could get the we could say yes this thing is real now let's take this thing and put it on national TV and we could convince the the rest of the American people that this this phenomena is real the American people would believe it we would have established the reality of the phenomena but I'm telling you right now that's as far as you go because basically when you come right down to it the reality of the phenomena is only part of the story and for the, the people that may be sort of squirming and about this this contacty thing and have some problems with it I want to ask you a question that was asked to us we as I said we chased around this Dr. Eric Walker and Dr. Eric Walker not only knew what was going on we're thoroughly convinced this guy knew the reasons for the secrecy he was involved in the beginning he knew Vannevar Bush he knew all these people he was a, he was basically an assistant secretary of defense at one time he's a very very powerful guy and at one point he we were asking him all these questions and we were bugging him we were saying come on Walker you're an old man like do something for, for humanity we were asking for some notes from a Wright-Patterson Air Force Base from from crash retrieval he had some notes that he had taken at this meeting and he held his ground he just wouldn't give up he wouldn't give us the the proof we needed to prove the reality of the phenomena and at one point he got very upset with us and he asked a question he said okay now let me ask you a question he said you tell me this when you get the answer to this thing what are you going to do next and it was a question that took me 15 years to figure out in fact I only figured out as I was doing this lecture what Walker was talking about and what Walker was talking about when he said when you get the answer what are you going to do with it is that if we if he helped us to establish the reality of the phenomena what are you going to do next what are you going to do with it and basically what it comes down to is a dead alien only establishes the reality of the phenomena a crash flying saucer only establishes the reality of the phenomena it tells you nothing more about the phenomena than that you may be able to rebuild a flying saucer and fly it around but basically it does not tell you where they're from it does not tell you why they're here and Walker knew that because Walker told us he said leave it alone there's nothing you can do about it and he told us that over and over research something else he said you're up against the windmills leave it alone there's nothing you can do about it and what he was basically saying is the reality of the phenomena beyond that the American government doesn't know anything there's nothing you can do about it it's out of our control Wilbur Smith said the same thing Wilbur Smith said and this is to quote Wilbur Smith the fact is that when certain government people came face to face with the reality of the space people and realized there wasn't anything they could do about it, they promptly closed their eyes and hoped the whole thing would go away. That, I will absolutely bet you, everything I can put on the table to bet is one of the main reasons why this story is not released. It is not released because of the things that the American government cannot answer and cannot control. Let me give you an example. There's a movie, there's a documentary that's coming out called Out of the Blue. It won two awards at the Laughlin Film um, Festival. And it has a new interview with Jimmy Carter. My interest is with the presidents. There's a new interview there with Jimmy Carter. And what they do with Jimmy Carter is he, he's very good at signing books. He can sign 400 books an hour or whatever it is. They, they got a guy in a wheelchair to slow line down. 
And they, they're going to ask him a question because Jimmy Carter will talk about his UFO sighting, but that's all he'll talk about. So they asked him about his UFO sighting. This thing is on tape. You'll see it on the documentary. And Jimmy Carter says, oh, yeah, I saw one of those things, you know, and it disappeared. And, and then the guy in the wheelchair says to him, he says, well, can you tell me about what, what, what did you find out when you were the president? And then Jimmy Carter suddenly realizes this thing is, is this kind of a setup, and he's being taped. And he says this. He says, there are many possibilities, but nobody has any answers. And again, it, it defines this, this phenomena that you can get the, the reality of the phenomena. You can get a dead alien, which the government has. You can get the crash flying saucers, which they have. But all you do is establish the, the, the phenomena. Now, let me make one final, well, let me first spell out why it's important that Smith is defended on this. Wilbur Smith knew the reality of the phenomena. I will show you, I'll play you tapes today to show you that Wilbur Smith had seen the crash flying saucers. Smith had seen the dead alien bodies. Smith had ha handled a whole pile of hardware, mysterious hardware. Every sighting that came into the Canadian government for 12 years went across his desk. He had talked to top U.S. government officials, and basically when it all came down to it, he said, I'm not getting anywhere. He knew the reality of the phenomena, but he said, we, we basically aren't getting anywhere. And if you take a look at those, those two points that I pointed back about Saarbacher, he asks Saarbacher, he says to him, he says, do flying saucers exist? Saarbacher says, yeah, they exist. And Smith says, next question, well, where are they from? Saarbacher says, we don't know where they're from. We just know we didn't build them. They had no idea where they were from. The other thing was the modus operandi is unknown. They don't know why they're here. The Americans had the crash flying saucers, they had the bodies, but they didn't know what was going on. So basically what it comes down to is until you, somebody starts talking to an alien, we aren't going anywhere. And that's the fact. I'll point out one more thing and then I'll move on to, to show you how concrete this, this thing is. Most of us want George W. Bush to stand up and, and make a disclosure. We have disclosure conferences, we have uh, people writing campaign letters you know, to George Bush. If George Bush were to stand up and say UFOs are real and they're extraterrestrial, I will guarantee you within five minutes somebody in the Washington Press Corps will ask the following question. Mr. Bush, it has been estimated that thousands, if not millions of people have been abducted by these aliens you're talking about. Mr. Bush, what are you doing to stop it? Mr. Bush does not only know not how to, he, he not only does not know how to stop it, he doesn't even know why it's happening. And the U.S. government will never admit something that they can't control. They are the superpower on the earth and George Bush will never disclose this thing because they just don't have the answers and he's dead in the water if he goes up there and looks like a, like a dummy who can't control the <laughs> okay some may say and justifiably so that the material coming from the contactees has got a lot of garbage in it and Smith said this and it's a justifiable thing to bring up it's what they call a high noise to signal ratio. But we are the researchers, and we are the people that are responsible for setting up protocols. And I think we're smart enough. We had the problem with remote viewing that they, they were getting a lot of garbage, and they learned in remote viewing how to get rid of the, the, the noise and get the actual signal. And I think rather than kicking the contactee in the head, people like Wilbur Smith and all these different people, that we have to develop some sort of protocol to study these people, and we have to find some way to get rid of the noise and actually talk to the aliens, because 
basically when it comes down to it, if you want to know where they're from, if you want to know why they're here, and if you want to know why they're abducting people, and you want to know how to stop them from abducting people, if that's your, your thing, sooner or later you're going to have to talk to the aliens. This isn't Afghanistan. You can't bomb these people. They're the ones with the power. Okay, now on communication. Smith was a contactee. I released this in the mid-1970s after talking to Mrs. Uh, Smith, and a lot of people didn't really believe it. Even now, a lot of people really don't know that he was a contactee. He was a contactee from the very beginning. A lot of people will say, well, there was a story going around, he had brain brain tumor, and that he got kind of strange at the end. The fact is actually the opposite. The contacts all occurred at the beginning of the research when he was running the UFO program. At the end, Wilbur Smith said he really didn't have a contact in the last two years. The, the aliens, they seemed to go away. They just And he, he said, I'm saving up questions. I haven't talked to him for two years, or I haven't had a contact with these people for two years. So it all happened at the beginning. The two aliens that were involved, actually I've got this wrong, Afa was the main alien. We're going to talk about him a lot. Tyla was an alien that um, was supposedly the garbage collector. He was flying around wiping up uh, nuclear fallout from the atomic tests. Afa was, Afa was the key, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about him. How the communication was done. Wilbur Smith had um, an expression that said, God provided, man divided. And basically, if you came to Wilbur Smith and said, I'm talking to an alien, Wilbur Smith would say, have a seat, tell me how you're doing it. You could be the guy I want to talk to. You tell me how you're, how you're doing this. Do you think you can teach us how to do this? And what he would also say to, to the guy is, I've got 100 questions here. I want you to go and take them to your alien and, and ask your alien these questions. The actual human contact, Smith said he never actually met these people face to face, and he was desperate to meet these people. He was trying to get somebody, get, get, get them to land, get them, uh, tell them I want to talk to them. Everybody that would come in that said they'd talk to aliens, tell them I want to talk to these people. I want to meet them face to face. The second method that was used, there was a number of methods. The second and the third sort of go together. The radio and the coil. As I said, Wilbur Smith was a radio expert. He had 37 patents. His wife said 36 of them the Canadian government stole. The majority of uh, radio equipment that was in the Department of Transport planes was built by Smith. He was a radio expert. He, uh, with monitoring, with building stuff, and of course he was very tied into trying to contact these aliens by radio. One of the stories was told to me by was this radio tech, told me a story. It was kind of funny. He said this was in the spring of 1953. He was at Shirley's Bay, which is where the monitoring station was, and he went there and. Um, they, he said the parking lot was full. It was Sunday afternoon. He couldn't figure out why the parking lot was so full. And he went into the station, and they were sitting at the big uh, radio transmitter. And uh, there's a bunch of people gathered around, and, and here they are, they're going to talk to Atha. And the guy that was running the, the thing I interviewed him, his name was Gil Bolger. He was the guy that was in charge of the radio. And, uh, and Smith says, well, okay, let's make this communication. And Bolger says, this is an illegal communication. I'm not making it. This is a, a, a licensed Canadian station, and we're not making this communication. I'm not going to do it. And Smith says, come on, make this communication. No, I'm not going to do it. And there's this big showdown, and eventually the, the communication wa was not made, or they didn't try to put it through. I talked to Gil Bolger later, and he told me this whole story about how Smith was trying to get him to make this communication. And I said to him, I says, well, does Afa ring a bell with you? Do you know who Afa is? Oh, Afa, man, I heard about that guy all the time. I was getting sick of hearing about that Afa guy. He says, I used to say to him, Afa pint, have another beer, Wilbur. So the coil was tied into this. Smith got from, from the boy's top side, he called him, he got a design for a coil. 
that would help them with the radios. And what it would do, it would create a donut-shaped wave and that the aliens could uh, lock into. So he had this coil, and Smith was building this thing. And it, he had sort of a, an important principle behind this. He was building this coil, and he was sending it to all the contactees of the day, Adamski, Fry, Williamson, uh, Van Tassel, all these guys. And he would send them this thing, and he'd say, you know, use this thing and try to contact the aliens. And, and he would tell them how to build this thing. And the contactees would all write back. These letters are all in his files. Would write back and say, well, you know, we, we, we can't get this thing. It's not working. And so Wilbur, of course, would build this thing for them. He would wind these coils, and he would send it back. And then they would come back, and they would say, you know, Wilbur, what, what, what are we doing wrong? We just, we just can't get this thing to work. Can you tell us? Uh, tell us? And Wilbur would say, come on. He says, they just gave us this thing. They're not here to do our homework. You know, like, come on. You've you got to do something for yourself. They're not going to do it. They've given us this thing, and it's up to us that they're just leading us along. They're not actually going to drop technology in our lap. So this coil actually did work at, at one point because Smith does refer, if you look at the, the quote section that I've, I've referred to, the, the quotes on the handout, Smith talks about a number of communications with the aliens done by radio. Um, sleep messages is a very important one. Uh, when I was talking to the um, the fellow who uh, did the metallurgist and the metallurg metal work for Smith, he told me. I asked him. I said, "How, do, how did Smith contact the aliens?" He told me, "Well, Smith would keep a pad beside his bed at night, and he'd wake up in the morning, and all the stuff would be written down on the pad. Wilbur would have gotten up in the middle of the night and written all this stuff down." And then he'd come into the lab in the morning, he'd say, oh, Appa's been busy. And he'd show the, he'd show the pad, Appa says we've got to do this, Appa says we've got to do that. And that was, according to the metal guy, that was how a lot of the stuff came through, was through this, this pad thing that was, was being used. The telex operator is probably the, the best story of the contacts. There was a blind telex operator in the Ottawa area who was getting messages on his telex from Appa. And he got in contact with Smith, and he would transfer these messages. The one particular message was in 1959. They were working on a gravity control experiment, which I'll refer to later. And they were, they were about to test this thing. And they had this, this thing, it was a plate. And they were rotating this plate at 15 to 18,000 revs a minute. And it was really moving. And they were about to test this thing when the phone rings. And they were either in the garage or the basement. I can't remember where the experiment was set up. And the metal guy was in the room, and he was telling me what happened. And he said it was the blind telex operator. And the blind telex operator says, Wilbur, we got a, a message from the alien, from AFA. And all he says is shield the experiment. Wilbur says, okay, fine, thanks, hangs out the phone. He says, okay, guys, got it. that's it, shut her down, we've got to shield this thing. So they got a bunch of bricks, and they built what was called a well. They built a, a huge wall around this anti-gravity experiment and started it up, and of course the thing exploded. And Wilbur talks in his, he doesn't talk about the blind telex operator, but he does talk about this thing exploding in his letters, and he says, it's a good thing this, uh, the, the, we were warned about this thing. He says, we were picking ceramic magnets out of the walls for days. So that was one of the things, the, the blind telex operator. Other contactees, as I said, he was in contact with all the contactees of the day, Adamski, Fry, all these guys. And he was basically, he would send them all this questionnaire of 100 to 125 questions. And what he would do is compare the questionnaires scientifically, and he would see, everybody was talking to Afi, he'd put all the questionnaires together, and he'd see whether all the answers to the different questions agreed. And he dealt with a lot of them, and he realized there was this problem of, uh, noise to signal ratio. Letters was one that I discovered and it just blew me away. It, Wilbur Smith talks about a letter he got from AF and I, I, I couldn't figure it out so I asked his son about it and basically what it was was there was a, a main contact that he had which is the woman at the end there, Mrs. Swan. They would send the, the letter to Mrs. Swan, she would read it to the alien and the alien would tell her what the answer was and, and the letter would be mailed back. 
Mrs. Swan, I'm going to talk about, as, when I talk about the 54 satellites tomorrow, I'm going to talk about Mrs. Swan. Mrs. Swan, I call her the star quarterback of the AFA team. Mrs. Swan is a woman you could write a book on. Not many people know about her. She is one amazing story. And a number of government departments in the U.S. dealt with her as well. But she was, one, she was the main uh, way that Smith contacted with the boys' top side. You see how much time I got here? Holy shoot. Okay, hardware. I, I'm missing time. I've been abducted here. Okay, now we get into the hardware. Wilbur Smith handled a lot of hardware. There's, there's some stories that, that some of it was counterintelligence. I don't think that's really true. He handled an awful lot. When I, when I sat with this metallurgist guy, and he, he was a very scary type of guy, we'd go into a room, and he would, he would sit in there, and, and the, his family would have to leave the, the, the room, and then he'd close the door. And uh, I asked him, and he did the metal analysis. I said to him, Art, I said, can you tell me, how much material did you and Wilbur actually analyze UFO material? And he paused, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, lots of it. Uh, there was various samples. I have a lot on my website. I have a lot of stuff on hardware, and it gets into details about you know the materials harder and it's this that. It, it's your standard hardware type stuff. You can read it on there. I'm not going to get too much into the uh, describing this piece or describing that piece. Wilbur Smith mentioned to uh, one, some of the inner, one of the inner circle member peoples there was a room in the Pentagon where the small hardware was kept the small pieces that were being sent to him, and they also had documents. And I don't know whether he was ever in the room. He just mentioned there was a room in the Pentagon where this stuff was being kept. Um, now I'm going to play some tapes, and I'm just going to play one after another. And this is other people talking about hardware. The first one is a tape of Wilbur Smith's son, um, who was, when Wilbur Smith died, he was 19 years old. And he's going to describe what he, his sister, and his brother saw going on inside the Smith household during the 1950s. And this deals with um, hardware. I remember, many times I do remember blue military cars pulling up the house and leaving packages of things for him to uh, do metallurgical analysis on. And uh, we'd asked him what they were, and they, he said, oh, they were chunks that uh, one of the unidentified things that the military had either shot down or found. Unidentified things? Or did he, did he actually use uh, the word flying saucers? Or yes. Yeah, on, a, on a couple of instances, I remember packages uh, about the size of a loaf of bread coming in. The box would contain a chunk of metal that he'd been told that, that the Air Force had shot a chunk off of a flying saucer, and he'd like, they'd already done some analysis of it. Mm -hmm. I would like to him, have him to have a go at it, too. So. Now, was this the American Air Force or the Canadian Air Force? Well, I, I don't remember what color the plate right. it was, but I mean, it came from the States, whether it was delivered to the house by uh, a Canadian or, Yeah, so it came from the States. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking for. On more than one occasion, there were these pieces that were sent in? On several occasions, and they'd be of different sizes, and there was no regularity to it at all. Mm. So he'd, he'd send them away for analysis and, uh, and try to cut pieces off them and do what he could as well. Yeah. Now, uh, some of those pieces you were saying, uh, some came in the mail, some came by military vehicle? Yes. Um, so there was uh, a, a number of them that were arriving. Yeah. You, uh, you actually saw some of these pieces as well, Jim? Oh, yes. Okay. And I saw them when you unpack the box and what's in there and take a look at it. Hmm. Well, how old would you have been then? Oh, well, looking uh, 10 to 17 in the age group. Did you get an opportunity to handle any, any of them? Uh, how would you know what was an unusual-looking piece of metal at the age of... I got to handle a few of them. Uh, one was a chunk about the size of a brick, semicircular in shape, and a 
very smooth metal, except where the jagged edges of uh, where it had been uh, disconnected from whatever it belonged to. It was uh, quite heavy in terms of its size. He had uh, analysis done of that one. I remember seeing that particular analysis sheet come back, and there were a few things in there that they're not found on this planet that were unidentifiable. Oh, really? Uh, but other than that, they were uh, high tensile steel and uh, whatever else goes into it. So presumably that paperwork was secret and he wouldn't have kept any copies of the analysis. Uh, well, I don't know where it would have gone. Mm. All of the artifacts or all of these materials, I take it, had been returned at some particular point in time? Well, he, yeah, he would send them back. Mm. That's unfortunate. It would yeah. be nice to have one. <laughs> well, you know, he'd probably cut off a, a cubic inch or something and would hang on to that. But, mm -hmm. Jim, you mentioned uh, that he was shown uh, bodies at one point or, or, or something. Yeah, on one of the times, he was in the States a lot, partly due to his work as a superintendent of radio regulations. So he had to deal with frequency allocations and channels and, and radio and that sort of business. So he was frequently on committees in the States where they were working out joint uh, uh, frequency allocations, for example. And on several occasions, he was invited off to be shown things uh, along this line. That was pretty well under the Official Secrets Act, he told us. However, when he, just before he passed away at 62, he felt the act couldn't get him any more than that, so uh, I did ask him, and he said, yes, he saw the, the bodies. And, and he had several connections with the high-ranking military folks, if I remember correctly. Yes. One of them was Rear Admiral Knowles, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah, we were at the Knowles home on many occasions. Yeah. And he was with, was it the Office of Naval Intelligence? Yes. Right, so there was opportunity there for this type of thing to be legitimate. He wasn't just, you know, he was told these things were there, he saw them. Yeah. It would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall at those social gatherings, wouldn't it? Unbelievable, oh. yeah. Did he describe them at all? Do you recall any Not that I can recall, except that the descriptions that had sort of been out and about were fairly accurate. The descriptions that were out and about were fairly accurate. Do we have descriptions of greys at that time? I think there were descriptions of smallish types. Uh, I don't know about necessarily the coloring, but... No, I, I don't remember a lot of those details. Mm -hmm. I just read it satisfied my curiosity that he had seen them and that, and that they were real. Okay, just to make a point on this, um, this interview at the very end, the last slide, has a, an address. This is about four minutes from a 45-minute interview with uh, Wilbur Smith's son. The address for that, you can listen to it on the internet. It's a, it's a bizarre interview. Um, you can follow up on that. The other point I want to make is there's discussion there. They said, were there greys in the 50s? And the, and the answer is no, there wasn't greys in the 50s. And the bodies were not greys. Uh, well, I, t I talked to Jim Smith about this as well. They were basically small people. That's the way Wilbur Smith described them. The next interview I'm going to do here, I'm just going to play two small clips, if I can get it right. This was a fellow by the name of Bob Groves, who was out of, out of the uh, Ohio group. This is a 60-minute tape. I think I'm probably the only person alive who has this tape. Um, it was provided to me by the Ohio people. He interviewed Wilbur Smith when Wilbur Smith was dying. He was, he was sick already. And in July of 1962, and, and Wilbur gave him an interview, and he goes into the, the hardware sections of this tape are sort of split up, so I'm going to play you two small sections. But uh, he goes into a lot of detail about uh, what Smith told him about um, what was going on. These are two small clips on hardware. During the 
actual operation, however, of this, when Mr. Smith was on his feet, he was constantly visited by both Canadian government officials as well as American government officials. These were, of course, upper echelon people with attaché cases that were chained and locked to their wrists to make sure, of course, that none of the information was dropped or uh, left behind in a station, a bus station or something. And uh, so he had a number of these visits. They had samples they wanted him to analyze of hardware, that is actually metal that had been found. Uh, they often made many statements. I might uh, mention some of the statements that had been made. Okay, that's the first section. The second section, he talks about... Just cue it ahead here. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.